Hello everyone, this is Product Book Lab Podcast, part of productbooklab.com, where we meet once a month to discuss a book related to product management with other product colleagues. To check the upcoming discussions and join us, visit productbooklab.com. Thanks everyone for, for joining us today. Uh, my name is Carlos, uh, this is productbooklab.com. And yeah, today we are discussing um, escaping the build trap from Melissa. We have also Melissa uh, with us. Um, so yeah, uh, maybe we can start, Melissa, with uh, yourself giving an introduction. Sure. Um, hey everybody, I'm Melissa Perry. I'm the author of Escaping the Build Trap. Um, I do quite a few things, but it all boils down to teaching people great product management. So um, I am a uh, professor at Harvard Business School and I teach the MBA students there about product management. I teach PM 101 and 102 to the second year uh, MBAs. I run an online school called Product Institute for teams. Um, so team level product managers, director level and below. And then I also run a CPO accelerator for VPs of product and above who are trying to transition into the C-suite. So everything I do kind of comes down to teaching people about product management. For the last, I don't know, seven years, um, I was consulting with organizations, setting up good product management um, practices there, working on developing strategies with them, trying to transition them into product-led and larger organizations, or getting them to be... Um, getting them to find strategy or build up teams or hire CPOs if they were growth stage companies. So I've worked in a variety of um, different companies, different industries, helping out um, CEOs and leaders really make those transitions. So lately I've been um, taking a step back from consulting and just trying to focus on teaching um, because that's really where my passion lies. Awesome, thank you, thank you. And uh, yeah, w welcome to the ones that uh, keep joining. Uh, yeah, so reminder, like, you know, I, I like this uh, to be more of like a discussions, right? So please, everyone, feel uh, free to make questions or to, you know, comments. Just, yes, of course, uh, make sure not to interrupt anyone else that is uh, speaking. Um, yeah, maybe I, I had like an intro question, uh, Melissa, for you. When I, when I read the book uh, some months ago already, um, you know, first I was like, wow, this really covers a lot of things, right? It has about the strategy, of course, explaining the build trap itself, uh, the different levels in the career, um, product-led organizations, a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of topics, as I, as I said. But how, how do you see, like, I don't know, I think especially when I was reading, you know, like, okay, companies should really focus, of course, on delivering value, right? Not just counting how many uh, features you're shipping, et cetera. I was like, makes a lot of sense, right? Uh, although I think it's still a lot of companies sort of like work on that mindset, right? Uh, why, why do you think this is still that so many companies sort of like have still this mindset of focusing on just counting, you know, code being shipped, right? And okay, value, like, like you mentioned, right? Yeah, I think it, you know, there, there's a lot of reasons in there. Um, if you want to get down to the most fundamental reason on why people do that, I think it comes down to um, it's easier to measure success by did we ship something versus did we not ship something rather than did we actually move these needles? Because it, it takes a while to measure outcomes, right? Like if your outcomes yeah. are we want to be able to uh, capture this market and, um, you know, have a five, you know, increase our adoption rate by 500%. Like you're not going to be able to get those numbers and say, Hey, we did that. 
within a week. You're going to have to look at that and measure that over a couple months, um, sometimes years, depending on how big you are. Uh, did you increase the value for doctors being able to take care of their patients? Like that might be a long-term outcome that you have to measure. Um, that's not to say that we can't get feedback sooner on those things, right, by measuring different proxies. Um, and that's why it's so important to capture all that data to really say, you know, if do we see a trend where um, doctors have better outcomes for their patients if they do X, Y, and Z in our system, right? And then we can measure how they use our system and try to draw those trends. And will it be a perfect A to B line causality relationship? Probably and not. Class, but it's not we make, me, Daddy. <laughs> we can we can make Daddy? a lot uh, more progress off of that. Daddy. Great. Um, very cute. <laughs> I have a lot of my students bring their kids with them um, in my MBA classes because they're online. And I'm always like, oh, I love seeing everybody's kids. Um, it just makes teaching online so much more fun. And pets. I love um, I had a bunch of cats like hanging out in some people's uh, videos the other day. So if you have pets, please show them to me. I love them. Um, I have. Yes. I see Karen with the cat over there. <laughs> I have a small dog who's like this big. He's smaller than a cat. Um, but uh, he's not with me in the office today. But uh, anyway, so the so data is really important there. But I, I think that's one of the things like you can definitively say, hey, that team did a good job. If you're only measuring the success of that team, by, um, by if you're only measuring the success of that team by did they ship this thing or not, you know, you could say, yes, good team, bad team. But if you're measuring a team that's like, hey, did they reach these outcomes? Did we actually produce value? for these things, um, it's gonna take longer. I think that's why companies just gravitate towards things that are easy to measure so that they can feel a little bit more comfortable about it. So I think that's like the underlying reason why, but then, you know, there, there's a lot of people who don't understand product or software leading some companies. Um, and a yeah. lot of the largest companies that are doing digital transformations, um, I've worked with a ton of them. It's, it's people who've never built software before. Uh, and they're probably adopting i find there's a big disconnect like they're they're adopting software practices because they want to be innovative but they don't know how to actually do it so yeah. all the tactics that they put into place are just very output oriented of like if we build software success right like like they just yeah. think like the more ideas we have the more software we put out there success and they're not really connecting the dots and it's i think from a lack of understanding of how that whole process works or where that comes from so a little bit of a education thing, a little bit of a fundamentally, it's just hard to measure the success of software products if you do want to focus on real value. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that indeed, I think that's also what I find interesting that, that you mentioned as well, right? Like indeed, I think that the first sort of like big uh, challenge is how do you define that value? And then, yeah, how certain do you want to be of measuring it, right? And what trade-off do you want to make? Like you said, maybe it's something that indeed takes a long time. So then maybe, okay, you can measure something closer, but then how of a good representation is that of that value, right? So I think that making that trade-off is also quite a, a big challenge, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. It's, um, it's not easy. I would say none of this is easy. I think there's probably like some bias in there too. Um, I see a lot of people just assume that their ideas will work, yeah. right? And they don't really approach it from a will this actually work? And like like you were talking about, how certain do we feel this will actually work? And you're never going to feel 100% certain. I, I tell this to the product managers that like I, I train too. Um, I actually had like, we, we did a bunch of reflections in our MBA class um, where I have them kind of reflect on the semester and talk about what they learned about product management. And a big one that came up is everybody said, 
I never realized how much the role of the product manager was basically taking all of these inputs from all over the place, synthesizing them, and then, you know, making decisions, but still being highly uncertain if those things are going to go. Like you can use data yeah. to only decrease decrease that risk so much, but at the end of the day, you do have to choose where which way to go and you're never going to be 100% certain. And um, a lot of them came back and said, I, I don't want that job. I realized like, I, I want to be the salesperson. I want to be the biz dev person. Like, I, I know that there's such a linear progression to that. I don't think I could handle operating under that high amount of uncertainty. And I do think that that is a part of the role, right? Like you have to be so comfortable with ambiguity. So yeah. I think um, a lot of people entering it uh, don't understand that, right? So they're like, well, you'll just build my ideas. And that, that's what we do with product. Yeah, 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 indeed. Um, does anyone have any maybe questions to make? Uh, uh, hi, Carlos. Karan here. Hello, Melissa. How are you doing? Hey, Karan. Uh, hi. I had a doubt because I read the book a while back and I just read a summary again of the book. So uh, the book revolves around you having a certain sense of ingenuity while you try to build something have your own sense of value attached to you trying to ship a product, not in terms of technicalities, but adding value to it. But my question is an antithesis to that thought uh, that when you start off as a product, the first thing that anyone does is imitate someone. It's just a fast that everything that is produced is something completely ingenuine. There are things that you, you start off with imitation, then you realize what your moat is, and then you move towards it. So uh, someone who's starting off with a really very few less resources in terms of money and given the current situation, uh, what would be your suggestion to you know blend that association of imitating something, building something decently successful, and then pivoting rather than being ingenious from the starting? So what would be your opinion, Melissa? Yeah, I think you have to be, so, so the way that I describe it to our mm -hmm. teams and, um, you know, at Harvard, we have, um, I have eight startups basically that are, are they're doing they, it. Um, I, we're going to change the course a little bit next year, but like they're starting from scratch, right? Like they're building these, these things from scratch. Mm -hmm. Um, same, same for a lot of the products that we're building. Sometimes they are, you know, the larger companies I work with, they'll have a product and now they got to mm -hmm. build a second one. Um, the thing I tell them is you will never be successful unless you can figure out how to deliver value in a way that your competitors are not doing, right? Like why, why copy exactly the same thing as somebody else is doing without any differentiation Correct. whatsoever? So you Correct. can differentiate, like, you know, there are strategies where there was a whole company um, in Germany that would just copy everything that was coming out of the United States, like Seamless, Uber, everything. Mm -hmm. copy it right like copycat it out but Correct. it was the german market it didn't exist there right so it is actually a novel approach it's a different set of value because you changed the market of where it's going to be Correct. now if you develop that and just copied absolutely everything in the united states it's in the, there's already adoption on these other products why would you do it right so so that's the point we're getting at i always tell people like if if it's a problem that's been solved before like mm -hmm. a ux problem or or like um you know, functionality or, or the requirements of it. If it's a problem that's mm -hmm. been solved before and those things are not absolutely core to your value, like they're not your differentiating factors, mm -hmm. like, yeah, copy those, right? Like learn from other people, learn what works. Good. And if it works, copy it. But if you're copying your entire product, right, 
you're not going to be successful. So where you should innovate and where you should be really spending mm -hmm. your time is on the core drivers of that value that's going to differentiate from your uh, competition, right? It shouldn't just be on uh, routine UX patterns if mm -hmm. they've got nothing to do with the success of your product. It shouldn't be on requirements. Like there are some table stakes out there that people just expect. You should borrow mm -hmm. those. You should borrow good patterns and design and Correct. stuff like that that have been solved. Um, a good, a good, like, what you call it of it, a good example of it is um, checkout in e-commerce. If you're building an e-commerce platform and you're not trying to be like a Shopify of solving the problems of checkout, mm -hmm. you shouldn't spend Correct. all of your time trying to create a new innovative checkout yeah, because, it's because like, there that's is something that's sell. already working well present in the market. So there are good elements exactly. that we can pick up from multiple people and also have our own value added to it, right? Exactly. And you have to test those still. Like, um, you still have to go out and see it. Like, I worked for an e-commerce company that tried to copy mm -hmm. Pinterest because um, they were like, well, our people are going to be saving. Uh, this is when Pinterest just came out. It got really big and, you know, it was worth mm -hmm. a billion dollars for the first time. Big right. unicorn. That's um, back in like 2010. So okay. we looked at it and they went, oh, we should have a Pinterest because that's how people want to save stuff to our platform. Like, they're going to save all of our things and create their own boards. So they, mm. they copied it and I nobody used it. It was like, cool, that is a design pattern, but like it's not core to our value. It's actually, you don't understand why Pinterest is successful and Pinterest isn't a shopping mechanism. Pinterest is a collection, right? Yeah. But nobody's actually coming to our commerce site to collect and hang out there. They're coming there to actually execute and buy things. Right. So like you can copy good design patterns, but as a collection tool, the Pinterest layout is fantastic, right? But what are you actually solving the problem for? Are you copying things that have been proven to work for different scenarios or are you just copying to copy something that's successful, right? Like that's the questions I would ask there. Thank you so much. Maybe uh, maybe I could go next. Um, uh, sure. I, I did, this isn't really a question or anything. Firstly, I wanted to say uh, thanks for writing the book. It was super cool. Thanks. I uh, had a nice time reading it. Um, I'm going to paste. I'm going to paste a quote into the into the chat. This is the thing. This is the core thing that what I got from the book. That I was like, hey, this is the thing I'm not doing at work. So, for me, strategy is a deployable decision making framework. This is the thing that I'm not doing at work. So, you know, I spend my time, you know, roadmaps and we're drawing, you know, topics. Oh, hey, we're going to look into this topic and we're going to measure the outcome here, but. The thing which I was missing was the decision-making framework around trying to plan ahead as to how I will, you know, make those decisions going forward. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, for me, that was just uh, that was the kind of the coolest, the cool quote from me. So, uh, yeah, I don't know if anybody else had any thoughts about deployable decision-making framework, but yeah, that was the, the one for me. Thanks. Cool. Yeah, I'm glad that uh, resonated. I think that was one of the biggest, I think that's one of the biggest uh, struggles um, organizations have. Uh, I've come into a lot of companies in the last, you know, seven years um, that want to lead product management change. They're like, we want to be a product-led company. We want to, you know, do this right. And I tell them, you know, when I come in, I usually tell everybody, all right, we're doing a little bit of everything, right? We're going to do a little bit of 
fixing the strategy at the top because it does take a lot of data and it does take a lot of time to actually figure out what this deployable decision-making framework should be, especially with the executives because they all have to <laughs> agree on it and move forward. Mm -hmm. And that sets a tone for the rest of the company. 90% um, of the time, this doesn't exist. Big companies, small companies, everywhere I go, it's, it's usually not there. Now, it may be in somebody's head and that happens a lot. Like it's kind of like stuck in someone's head and then I basically pull it out and try to put it into writing. And then I actually make them codify some parts of it, right? It's just kind of like a mushy thing in the head, but there's usually strong opinions about where we should go. But the questions of how will we measure success when we get there, or, or what does this actually mean? And how is that different? And what's this? Like those things are not sometimes all the way thought through. So that's like one of the first things we do. Um, then we train the teams a little bit. Uh, and then we, we do some org design that's based off the strategy. And we set up some operations to make it work. Now, when companies usually call me to start this stuff, they're like, oh, no, 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 but we just want you to train our product managers. And I was <laughs> like, you can't actually have any success, though, making the shift if you truly want to make a shift this way. And then I asked them, well, do you really want to change, right? Or are you just looking to get some leverage out of people who have a new role? Or are you really trying to change the way that you approach software and product management? Um, and if it's if that's the what they actually want to do, they want to change the way that they work. Um, I always say that they do have to look at strategy, and that's something that a lot of teams don't want to do because they think that doesn't actually live in product, and that's something that we have to like reclaim. Yeah. yeah. Melissa, can I can I ask a question about that? Hi, it's it's Dar, and a big big fan. I recommend the book to anyone who'll listen to me. So. Um, you know, uh, on that line, you know, you mentioned that strategy does take time and kind of like the developing that decision framework does take time. So for organizations that are like on the path and moving forward, what do you recommend of things that you can do while this thing, this like vision that you're, you know, defining or kind of like strategy that you're defining while you're kind of like um, getting to that point, what are some of the things that, that you recommend teams do to kind of like keep, keep moving forward, keep making solid decisions while that's happening in parallel? Yeah, there's usually a lot of like the the first thing that I, I would do when I came into an organization and we had actually put together the strategy was we first bubbled up everything that everybody was working on. So we looked at like across the board, what is actually happening right now? Because usually people are just sitting there totaling their thumbs like things are actually happening. So we look at the whole thing and we say, all right, like let's actually put these into buckets. What type of work are we doing and why? So how do we connect that back out there to start it to see if there's common themes? And there's reasons behind what we're doing. And then we would look at that and we say, are these whys actually justified for us doing this work right now? Like, is this, is, are these some known knowns that we just have to get done? And a lot of that work would be, um, you know, I've had teams that had to like rebuild platforms. I've had teams that had to um, deliver on some customer commitments that were already promised. Um, and we basically just surface that all up. We ask ourselves, why are we doing it? And then we look across it and just say, what should we stop and what should we start? Like, what should we continue doing? And is there anything we should actually stop right now? Um, is there anything we should add to this? Because it is mission critical and we have time to get some stuff done right now. Uh, you know, what's that balance? And I think that's the best approach to figuring it out. It's like, no, there's not going to be a huge strategic, uh, you know, bucket wrapping all this work up right now. But there's usually some good reasons behind why we're doing that work. Let's surface them up and actually acknowledge those, make sure they're valid reasons, and then keep doing those and and start to build that framework of what will we say yes to right now while we are developing the strategy, right? What do we agree on is mission critical? And I, I think that's important. Like, I think it's more important to just have 
a framework rather than no frameworks whatsoever, right? Like it doesn't have to be the best framework. Um, I was interviewing uh, Georgie Smallwood, who who's a CPO of, um, oh man, she just changed. Uh, she She's now at a, uh, a scooter company in, in um, Berlin, but she used to be the CPO of N26. And, uh, you know, I was asking her, I was like, what's your favorite strategy framework? And she was like, it doesn't matter. Like, you just pick one, right? Like, pick one and see if it works. She's like, it's more important that we find one. Um, we decide on it. Tier mobility. There we go. Um, I was like, I know its name is like really getting me. So, um, like, pick one. Just pick one. See if it works and do it. She's like, I'm trying a different one at tier right now. I used a different one at N26 that I like, and I'll reuse some other times. But I just try to suss out what's going to work here and then having a framework is way better than having no framework whatsoever. So I think sometimes we get like caught up in, in thinking through like, you know, OKRs versus this versus that. And it's just like, if you pick one and we have a framework for saying yes or no, that is like, that's 90% of the battle, right? And then 10% will tweak it and make it better for us. Thank you. Maybe, so, yes, similar to that. Hey, Melissa. Um, in, in a B2B SaaS context, so what would you say is the hardest part for a PM when transforming a company, working as a feature factory driven by like sales and customer requests to a product-led organization? And how do we also manage your kind of own uh, expectations about the progress on this journey as well? Yeah, moving from sales-led to product-led is really hard. Um, there's a couple things. It's not going to happen unless you have full buy-in from the CEO. Mm -hmm. I've been part of like so many of these, and it's like horrible to say, but it is. If, if your CEO doesn't want it to actually happen, or you know, isn't really invested in it, um, it never happens. I've, I've spent many times sitting there like toiling away at these things, and it just doesn't happen. So that's like the first thing to really look at. Now, um, you can usually explain why it's important to them. Uh, I had a CEO at one company where I helped lead a transformation who just did not understand product. Um, but then I helped show him that, you know, by doing it this way, he was going to get all the information that he actually wanted. So like he had this issue where uh, he was a, he was kind of a, he was a visionary CEO, right? This was his baby. He built it. It was around for 20 years. It IPO'd. It was really big. Um, that was his baby. And now he's like relinquishing control of his baby to, you know, a team of nine to 10 executives and chief product officers and stuff like that. Now, he he lost track of like what was going on because it got really big. It was a 5,000 person company. And then when he realized he lost track of what was going on from a product development standpoint, what are we actually building and why, he started to freak out and he started to like go into people's JIRAs and be like, let me look at all these tickets. And then he was like, I don't understand the tickets. And I'm like, yeah, you have no idea what an API is. Like, stop looking at that. That's not, that's not for you. Um, but you can't actually go tell an executive, like stop looking at the information if you're not gonna give them information, right? So, so that's where we started to do all the strategy deployment because I told him like, if you want to, you, you wanna be more innovative, your competitors are catching up to you, all these things are happening. If you want to do those things, we got to start thinking about how we're going to win. So you need to sit down and think through your product strategy and everything else of like, how do you want to win? Where do you want to bring this? And that got him thinking more about um, the role of the software product, right, in the organization and where we could actually differentiate. Uh, so, so you start to see where 
you know, uh, just selling what they had wasn't going to work, right? The sales led thing. He started talking about the customer commitments and they had enough experience where they had run into issues where they over promised stuff and couldn't deliver and people were unhappy and stuff like that. And he's like, why do we keep doing this? They can't work fast enough. And I was like, no, it's got nothing to do with working fast enough. Like, let's look at this. You, you promised somebody this and you can only do this this year. Like this was, this was a disconnect between sales and it started to get him to understand why selling ahead and everything like that wasn't really working. So he started to be on board, but he never fully grasped like what we were doing. It was just enough of like, here are my problems, fix it. And we were like, okay, product's gonna help you fix that. And he was like, okay, I'm on board, right? So that that's how we got him there. Um, the I, I have worked with C, CEOs though, that you've told them all that and they don't care, right? Like, that, <laughs> like it's just, it's never gonna win. So. It's, um, you're not gonna win everybody over. So like, we'll start there. Now, if you do have somebody who's amenable to it, right? Um, and they are like, yes, please fix this, I'm on board. Uh, now you can start to shift. And now you gotta get everybody else on board too. And you have to start to like define what the working relationships are. So to me, it starts with a strategy because it starts to bring everybody on board with like, where are we going, right? Like, where, where do we want to be? And it starts to lay out a picture of what we're going to evolve to and where we're going to go for. Like sales usually gets on board with product um, when they know things are going to come that are going to help them sell easier, right? So like when we work with the head of sales, we say, um, your goal is to sell more things so that you all can make your commissions and stuff like that. Like my job is to help you sell more things. Like if I don't make it easier for you to sell things, I'm not doing my job because that means there's no demand from the customers and I built the wrong thing, right? So that's how we kind of get in line there. But we say in order to do this correctly, we need to develop a working relationship where I'm not screwing you guys over because I can't deliver what you already promised and you're not screwing us over because you're over promising and then getting mad at us. So like, how do we, how do we bridge this gap? So it starts with building that relationship with sales where you're like, the two of us are partners now and we're gonna to work together. Um, and then what we did at that company that I was talking about is we started to build um, out a framework that allowed us to communicate about whether things were ready to uh, to ship or not, right? To be sold or not. So we brought a whole language to the organization that was like, all right, if things are still highly uncertain, they're gonna be in this experiment or alpha stage. And that means that as a salesperson, you're not allowed to go sell that to new prospects. You're not allowed to talk about these things. What you're gonna do instead is help us cultivate a group of users who are gonna test it and figure out if they like it. And then we're gonna really decide whether or not to proceed. So we'll be able to talk about these things with you and you'll know what's coming up. And I want your feedback on whether you think that's gonna work or not, but you can't sell it. Like you cannot talk about this. Now, when it moves into beta stage, 75% sure that what you see is what you're going to get. We're probably going to iterate, we're scaling, we're making sure it's working. Um, but we've already tested it a lot with some other users. Now we're worried about does it scale well across the board? So you start to talk about the problem. You can bring in some close people if you think it's going to really make the sale, um, but it's not going to be ready tomorrow, right? Like now we have some timeframes that we're talking through. Then we said anything that's generally available will market GA when it ships. You'll see it in our roadmaps and stuff like that sell away like the, all of that is free game you could talk about it anywhere you could put it on all your marketing stuff everything like that so we we brought this language where everybody started to be on the same page of are things ready to go or not um and then that stopped the whole like oh well at that roadmap meeting a year ago you said that you guys were exploring this problem so we promised it to 10 people right so it cut down on that and um, they came to the table when they had problems instead. And we had like, we had meetings set up with sales where they told us the feedback 
we set up this whole product operations division that worked with sales and, you know, helped streamline and aggregate it and get to the root of the problem, figure out who we could talk to as prospects to do more user research. And then that helped shift us into more of a product-led organization for sure. Yeah, it is super interesting because especially the part also about the different stages of um, the features is something that I also recently experienced where basically we started to do more in the innovation direction. So we explored topics that are really at the very beginning and we're just trying to figure out like how well they resonate with the market, right? Um, yeah. And then one of the first things that actually happened is that somebody basically tried to uh, include it in a deal with a customer. And we are like, then like, whoa, 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 wait, <laughs> like all your horses. Yeah. This is really the goal right now is not to sell it. Um, yes, we want to, to get customers excited about it. We want to get their feedback, um, get the market um, feedback there. But it's really not at a stage where it should be sold. So that definitely absolutely resonates with me. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> I mean, one thing maybe as a follow-up mm -hmm. that I would be interested is also how much do you think um, for the strategy, how much of that should come from the CEO and how much should come from um, PM or product and kind of like be agreed upon, of course, but kind of how much should you bring to the table and how much should you ask basically from, from this year? Yeah, the, the way that I kind of navigate it is by showing everybody there's different levels to what you are in charge of and responsible for with the strategy. Uh, there is the business strategy and the company strategy, and that is what the CEO and the executive team is responsible for, including the executive leader. So as a chief product officer, you would also be responsible for the business strategy, right? Then the product team is responsible for the product strategy. And the product strategy is how do I manifest this business strategy, right? How do I reach these goals through developing software products? So that belongs to the product people. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't get input from everywhere. But we say, like, here's the ownership tiers of what you own. And um, so typically when we like when I've come into organizations, worked with the CEO, like I sit with the CEO and I make them write a company vision comes out like three pages long. I ask them all about like, I, I make them say like, this is where we came from. This is where we're going. This is how we want to differentiate. Here's what we're not going to do. This is what we want to do. Um, you know, this is where I see us in five years, right? This is who we want to be. And this is how we want to bring value to our customers. And these are the customers we want to serve. So it usually takes them a while to do that. But they, they usually have it boiling around in their heads. They just haven't like gotten into the fine details or actually wrote it down. So so half the battle is just getting them to write it down. Once they write it down, then we start to refine it. And then we break down with the executive team. OK, now, if, if this is where we're going, what do we need to do to actually get there, which is what I call strategic intents. So um, is it, you know, are, are we trying to be the world, like a global resource for something, right? In that case, we're going to have to do a geographical expansion. So maybe that's one of our strategic intents, like which markets do we want to expand internationally with? Like, are we going to move from an English language to a Spanish language? Or are we going to go, you know, you know, tackle Asia pack? Like, what are we doing? And those become those business strategies, right? It's not super software related. It's about like, how do we grow our market size? How do we conquer that type of stuff? Now the product team, once those are set, the product team looks at it and the VP of product or the CPO or your directors of product, like your higher level product team, looks at your software and goes, what do we need to do with our software to be able to do those strategic intents? Is it bringing a new product into market because we actually don't solve the needs of that market fully with our product right now? So for instance, I've had like a, um, a lot of the growth stage companies that I've worked with have had like a, a product for a small or medium business and they all wanna move into the enterprise, right? But in order to do that, uh, you need to change your product to be enterprise ready. So like that's, that's 
building APIs, integrations, um, account management stuff, right? Like that, that starts to show your framework of how is my product actually going to evolve to meet the needs of this new market that we actually want to get into. And that's where your product strategy kind of comes from. It's from, all right, what's our vision for how this is going to provide value if we know this company strategy? So what's our vision there? And then short term, what do we do now to help achieve those strategic intents? So you're basically looking at long-term vision and trying to like slice out, how do we get to the long-term vision while solving these goals? So it's almost like a, it's like a Jenga puzzle, you know, where you're like looking, looking at this and figuring out what can we build and how do we prioritize it? And that's how I think about it. Like the strategic intents help you prioritize what you're going to do to get to the vision and help you figure out how to morph that vision into where you want to go as a business. Because mm -hmm. that also means basically if asked for a product strategy, um, you should push back uh, to get basically the vision and strategic intent first, right? Yep. Um, before you can provide anything to really make sure that it's actually in line with, um, even if it's there in, in their heads already, just get it out and on paper to yep. have clarity on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I think every good, product leader will tell you, like, I cannot create a product vision without knowing what the company vision is. Like, if yeah. you're a very uh, small startup, though, those things might look the same at the beginning. And that's true. Like, if you're going to be a software startup, your product vision, and your company vision are usually super close together, mm -hmm. right? Like, they're, they're very similar. But as you grow, and if you're growing into a bigger company, that's when they start to divide. And that's where it becomes more important to have both a company vision, and then also a product vision. Yeah. Cool. Thanks a lot. I have a question for you, Melissa. Mm -hmm. um, first of all, thanks for uh, coming on to this and, and fielding questions. Um, I, as I was reading your book, uh, you know, the, the, just even with the first few chapters, I'm sitting there nodding my head, head yes, yes, uh-huh. Like this is uh, really resonating with me. And what I find and personally struggle with sometimes is I uh, have read your book as well as uh, other product books is the line where it exists between holy grail theory of product, which is where we want to be and wh where we are today. And there's a gap that exists between that. And there's a journey that I think uh, to move toward that place, never necessar necessarily like reaching it, but always moving gradually toward that. Uh, some of the questions have been around, you know, some of those destinations uh, of, or, or in friction that exists along the way, including from like CEO with a product mindset and other variables that fall into place. Is there a sort of like a metric or, uh, you know, a couple of them? I, I tend to be very metrics focused and driven. Uh, is there something that you look back at, you know, on a periodic basis that you say, am I making progress? Like, is there something that you look toward that is sort of an indicator of that or even an inverse indicator of that, of saying we are going in the wrong direction uh, as it comes to taking steps in that uh, toward whatever this whole, you know, perfect land of product. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. 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 I think some of them are, are, are good business stuff too. Like when I, when I've done transformations or led transformations, we look at a couple different things and it's, it's the same type of outcomes, right? So I start by asking the organization, like, what do you want to achieve by doing this product? Like, what does it look like? Um, and a lot of it will be those long-term outcomes. Like we want to deliver better customer value. So then those, those metrics are almost the same as the product OKRs that you're, you're doing and the metrics that you have in the strategy framework, right? How do you define measuring customer value? Well, that goes back to your product strategy. But then there's the operational metrics of the organization. So um, short term, you can kind of look at like, what are, we not, what are we doing that's not good, right? And what are we doing 
um, or what are we not doing and how do we start to put stuff around there? So I've done it in different ways. Like um, the strategy metrics almost always go to to what the strategy OKRs will be or like what those outcomes will be. The operations metrics, uh, for instance, is sales selling ahead of the roadmap again, right? We count that every time they make a deal that sells ahead of the roadmap, like we measure that and we try to see, you know, last quarter we had 10 of those, this quarter we have three. Okay, we're making progress. What can we actually do to get that down lower, right? So I'll look at stuff like that from a sales perspective. Um, I'll look at things like from a team perspective, are they making the right decisions? I'll look at um, how many teams are actively using data to support the reasons of why they're making those decisions. So when we have roadmap meetings or we, we bring people in, um, and they do their presentation, like they will get grilled by the product leaders about like, why, why did you do that? Show me the data, put that in there, right? And the more um, presentations that we see that involve that data or that logic, right? Like that's that's a win for us. Okay, we went from nobody doing that to we went for to half of the people doing that. And if only half are doing that, what's the blocker? Oh, it's because they don't have data. Okay, now we have to infrastructure, put the infrastructure in for to get them the data, right? And then I expect to see them in six months come back and actually use those things to make decisions so you can break it down like as as narrow as you want to go i don't think there's one overall um metric for it there's also a great book called um accelerate uh it's it's kind of a devops book but they actually have a criteria in there that talks about um the metrics to measure high performing teams so they uh let me let me get the name and everything for you so that you can get it. I'm going to post it in the chat. Um, it's called Building and Scaling High-Performing Teams. And this is Goodreads, but I was looking on Amazon. Come on. There we go. It's a science. Yeah, it's called The Science of Lean Software and DevOps Building and Scaling High-Performing Technology Teams. So there you go. Um, so this was uh, written by Nicole Forsgren, uh, Jess Humble, and Jean Kim. But Nicole has done like a ton of research on software teams um, and came out with the metrics of like what actually makes these teams high performing versus not. And she breaks them down in the book of every every team that we've seen does X, Y, and Z on there. And they have been able to codify that and trace it back into the teams that do really well and perform really well in delivering customer value. So that might be a good place to start too if you wanna see the internal workings of the team on there. And they do cross over very nicely into some of the stuff we would want to look for in product as well. So um, even though it says DevOps, I find a lot of it's relevant. So for instance, like if you can't ship um, products on a consistent basis, you can't actually deliver customer value. So like that directly impacts how people can get done with product management. Um, so there's a lot of stuff on there too. I think that that might be helpful. Thank you. I had maybe like a related question to that one because what one part I really like was I think it's already when you're discussing about product-led organizations is that yeah you move off from rewarding people on outputs to rewarding them not only for achieving goals but also for learnings right and yeah. I mean I, I totally agree right but then what I have found myself sort of like more uh, questioning is like how can I make sure that I'm learning well first that I'm like learning well and that I'm learning maybe fast enough, right? Um, mm -hmm. So how, how, yeah, what can you look at to, to know, right? So for example, I don't know, okay, am I indeed talking with users, right? Every now and again, um, but, mm -hmm. you know, besides those sort of like more, um, 
I don't know, unique experiences or things. Uh, I haven't found a way of, you know, more objectively say like, okay, am I learning uh, enough, right? Or, at the speed that I, that I should, or am I doing yeah, good learning? Uh, I, I don't know if you have maybe, yeah. What, what are your thoughts on that? I was curious. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I see this a lot. So I, I talk about the Pratikata in my book, if, if you've seen it. Um, when I've taught it to a bunch of teams, uh, I sometimes get people who make me like a, a kata board. Um, I use this with my students too. And they, it gets to be something like 150 rows mm -hmm. in the matter of, I don't know, like a month. And I was like, what, what are you doing? Right? Like, what, what, what's going on here? And they're like, we're running experiments. And I'm like, but but why right like what's what's the point of that experiment and sometimes i think we we can over index on trying to learn everything instead yeah. of learning the thing that's going to help us make the next decision and that's that's what i think is good quality learning like anything you learn should help you make a decision and if you learn something that can't help you make a decision or figure out what's the next experiment to run that's that's not a great learning right like that's not helping yeah. us there so Whenever I whenever I say like an experiment was successful, even if it failed, it's just like it helps us make a decision. If I ran an experiment and I, I've done this before, like there was a company I was working with and um, I had a, like massive amount of stakeholders in it and they were all really like opinionated. And I was like, all right, fine, we'll run an experiment around what you think. Um, and it came back and like there, there was no good data around it. Like the experiments weren't telling me anything. I wasn't able to make a decision about whether we should do that or not from it, the way mm -hmm. that I ended up. So I was kind of like wasting my time running these experiments to appease some stakeholders, right? Yeah. Instead of actually doing something that was going to help us reach our reach our goals. And I, I think that's the good quality learning, right? Like if you learn, yes, we should do this. No, we shouldn't do this. Or I learn enough to refine my experiment, run it again, so that I will come up with a definitive answer. To me, all that stuff is going to be valuable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hi, Alexandra. Hi. I think you're, I can't hear you, but I see that you're talking. <laughs> <laughs> no, not yet. We cannot hear you. <laughs> now? Should it work now? Yes. Yeah. Perfect. Sorry, thank you. Uh, yeah, my name is Alex. Uh, first of all, yeah, uh, thank you for writing the book. Uh, my product team, we read it as like our first book for a product book club that we've been oh, doing awesome. ever since. Yeah. Um, so, and I'm actually thinking that it's, I think it's time to bring it back to some of the new people that joined since, uh, since we had it. Um, I'm going to ask a question. I know you touched on it a little bit when talking about a sales driven organization, but I work in a reality where as much as my company likes to believe that we're long-term focused, uh, we also measure very much on the short term, meaning that every quarter, each product team is expected to um, prove impact. And yeah. I work I work on internal uh, products. A lot of what I do is legacy pilot, like legacy pilot that's necessary for our, our longer term vision, but it's very hard to, to measure, first of all, the progress and also to sell the, the value of it to make sure that we're putting the right resources in it. So I was wondering if you had any mm -hmm. advice or uh, examples that you can relate to on that. So, so it's a legacy product and you're basically trying to justify the value of, is it is it questions about like, should we keep working on it or we're we making changes to it? So it's how do we prioritize working on so it's it's specifically it's it's catalog management. I work at an e-commerce company mm -hmm. and it's um 
yeah, like our legacy systems that exist since like 15 years. So how do we ensure that we're putting the right resources on this and not only just on like the next shiny new thing that's going to bring us more revenue? Oh, yeah. And um, two, if we're expected to, as product managers, to be very data-driven and, and uh, measure, how do we provide measurability when we're working on these super long-term things and not necessarily report on a quarterly basis on, on impact? Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't think there's a, okay. So let me start with the first one. Uh, how do we manage the legacy products? I have worked on a million legacy products. Um, the, a lot of what I say to people too, is that you can't just get rid of them and you can't just like put everybody onto something else because it usually runs your entire business. So if you want people to work on shiny new things, you have to make a transition to get off the legacy products. If you want to build like a new platform. And sometimes that's just not feasible, right? There's a cost associated with it. So for example, like when I work with um, a lot of growth stage companies, they could have a platform that's like, you know, been around for a while that they've been using and it's not wonderful. And a lot of them are all like, oh, we want to replatform. Um, I've had large banks say this too. We're going to replatform all this stuff. I'm like, great. There's a cost associated to replatforming. So how much is your legacy product contributing to your ability to make sales right now? Is it 100%? Is it 50%? Is Are all the products supported by it? Right, that type of thing. And then what's the cost of actually moving over and how can you ramp up sales onto the new platform or like move it over, right? Like that's the transition that we look at. Now, when you actually see those numbers and you start cal calculating it out, a lot of people are like, oh no, we can't actually just rebuild a new platform migrate people because it's going to cost way too much money than we have right now. And you're like, great. So now we're going to have to make changes to the legacy platform to make sure that it can still support, right, the way that we want to do e-commerce. So what do we do? What do we do to like start to build it up better and make sure that people can actually look at it? Um, so we do want to look at like, the uh, so, uh, so we kind of measure the justifications between like developing on this versus is it faster to develop on something else? If we make these tweaks, would it make it faster, right? Unlocking, unlocking the time to value is like a big one that we look at for those um, types of things. So you can justify like if we make these changes or we keep supporting these pieces, it'll actually make it 10 times faster for us to release new products on top of this, which means that you'll be able to acquire this much more revenue in this amount of time, right? Like you, you bring it all the way up to the business level decisions and you start talking about revenue and costs, all of a sudden the executives will start paying attention and they're like, oh, I didn't realize like this had anything to do with money. And you're like, yeah, it's not just software. It, it all powers our business. And to me, those types of things are, are the most eye-opening to get justification on like why we should be working on these things and not just chasing after shiny objects. So you kind of have to present them with a choice. It's like, this is what happens if we only work on shiny objects. And this is realistically what we're going to need to do if you don't want to support the legacy product, right? Like this is what we're talking about. Now, if you do, um, these are the changes we could make to make it more robust, more stable, right? This is what we're going to actually need to get it. So it's kind of like laying that all out in black and white for them. The other part is the, um, is the measuring the success of the long-term stuff. Uh, I try to see if you could break it down. Like if it's, if it's like replatforming and stuff like that, when we have gone through major rewrites or overhauls of products, what I always get our development team to do too is start to slice it, not from a ground up perspective, because that's what everybody tries to do, but more from like a value delivered perspective, right? Like of this, this why. That's made a huge difference in in the way that they deliver things and how you can start talking about it. Um, I had this one team that had been 
working on a, um, there, there was like a 20 year old um, real estate company that we were working with and they had a, a legacy platform, everything was on top of it and it was breaking all the time. And they had been working for like four years to rebuild the platform. And you go look and you're like, why is it taking four years? It's really like not that crazy. Um, and it was because they were just trying to do everything bottom up, right? And they weren't thinking about, you know, instead, do people actually use all this functionality? Like you built a lot in 20 years, like what's the 90% of the product that people use? Let's start there, rebuild that, and then start to transition other stuff that they use over. Um, they never approached it that way, right? They only approached it, re approached it from like, let's just rebuild everything that we have. And those types of things I think will um, end up being the really large projects, right? Where you can't actually measure success until much later. I don't think you have to report on like OKRs every every quarter if you're working on slower projects. Like I, I work with a ton of banks and they actually will never finish like a, a project in a quarter. So there's no way they're gonna report on that, right? So instead it's like, we have to wait sometimes to really reflect on it. But as we make things live, then we can start to report on the progress and then make the decisions and refine our stuff. Thank you so much. Yeah. I was hoping I could jump in if no one else is. Um, hi, Melissa. My name is hi. Ali. And I came across your book about a couple of years ago. And, you know, it kind of it helped, you know, I think validate some of the frustrations that I was having because of, you know, I think in the early part of the book, when you start to talk about some of the organizations where I didn't even know what Build Trap was and, and the fact that I was in it. Um, you know, what used to happen is the leadership team in November would go into a boardroom, come up with all of these ideas, and then our goal was just to deliver, deliver, deliver. As they start to move on to a product-led kind of structure, um, we started to then, you know, collaborate with some of those leadership team members. But what we start to find is we start to incorporate things like, you know, discovery, user research data to be able to validate anything that we we're going to put on a roadmap. But one of the criticism we started to maybe get when we started to work this new way was the fact that maybe in the past, we just jumped in and we started delivering straight away and maybe we weren't delivering any value. And people were starting to kind of criticize and saying that maybe things have slowed down. So maybe, you know, even though before we had proved this new way of working, it worked, we've been kind of criticized somewhere like, you know, you've worked in this new way, but you guys are not delivering anything anymore. You're not bringing in any value on the developers anymore. And one of the things I was worried about is if they see that this is not delivering fast enough, that they would revert us back to how we used to work. How do you, you know, kind of, you know, make sure that before they see the ultimate result, the value of this, that they don't, um, kind of pull the plug and just, you know what, you know, delivering value quick enough as it used to. Yeah, so, so there's a couple things. Um, anytime an organization or a team tries to change the way that they're working, I do warn executives. I say like, while we're learning a new way of working, we will slow down. Like I, I guarantee you, we're not gonna be delivering what we used to be delivering. And that's because we're learning, we're learning how to get better. But you're gonna see something go like this. It's gonna be like a hockey stick curve, right? Where you're you're going a little bit slower and then it's gonna spike and then you're gonna get the rewards of it in a year or so, right? And in a year or so, hopefully we could deliver two times as much, you know, as we did. And it's not even two times as much, it's like two times as much value <laughs> as we did, right? <laughs> you may see less products coming out the door, but that's because the products that we are shipping, we know, or we feel a little bit more sure that they are the right products to be shipping. So we're gonna spend more time on that, polishing them up and make sure they're the right things to get out there 
But that doesn't mean that we might ship like, like it's wasteful. And I, I've literally like tried to calculate this with money and stuff and show, show executives and they respond pretty well to it. But it's like, all right, last year we shipped 30 products, let's say. How many of those actually achieved any of our goals? And sometimes they're like, oh, I have no idea, right? Because I didn't actually measure those things. All right, so that's bad. How much money did you spend on that? $100 million. Oh, was that a good investment? And then they actually can't answer because they're like, well, we've never been measuring that before. I don't know what my ROI is. I guess our revenue went up. And you're like, can you tell if that revenue was due to the new products or was it just going up because you've got a more efficient sales team or you hired some more people to go out there or you did better marketing, right? Like, how do you know it was attributed to product? And that starts to get them to talk about how do we measure value? And you're like, okay, so now let's talk about, you know, once we can measure that value, how do we make sure that if we do build 30 products this year, they're the right products to build. Could we actually have achieved that same amount of value with 10 products, right? Because we did all the right work ahead of time. We spent a lot of time making sure they were the right products. We shipped them. They um, you know, they went out to customers and we, we saved all the money because we didn't do the bad stuff that we actually have to support now. So I try to bring it into those conversations of like investments and did you spend your money wisely and how do you know you're spending your money wisely and would you actually bet on that? And then I do tell them like, all right, we're, we're moving into this way of working and it's going to allow us to do better things, but you're not going to see that right away. This is how you can tell it's working. We're going to be doing X, Y, and Z. And you kind of just like lay out the picture for them about what to expect. And I think when you set those expectations, people start to understand, they start to get behind it. You can be like, it's the same way as if you would revamp your entire sales platform, right? Like you're, if the sales team went through like a huge major overhaul where they decided to do a new method of selling, they changed all their scripts, they did X, Y, and Z, like their sales obviously is going to change, right? Like it's, they're not going to be able to work exactly the same way that they did if they have to train everybody and move them up. And that's the same thing that they have to understand about product. Like I've seen um, sales teams, for instance, uh, you know, want to move into the enterprise like I was talking about. You have to hire a whole different set of people to be able to sell to the enterprise because now you're talking to CIOs instead of, you know, door-to-door -door sales of like um, people on teams, right? It's a very different sales approach. So when we do roadmaps and stuff to say like, should we invest in this? We, we take that into account. We say, you know, we could build this in a year, but can you build a sales team in a year? Like you need to start doing that now because it's going to train them all to be able to do that. And I think you just have to compare it into other types of the business. Like, you know, this is not business as usual. This is us getting better at our craft, getting really better. And you're going to see it spike up. Here's how you can like tell. So give them ways to measure your success, right? So that they can see that it's getting better. Um, but set expectations for them about like, it's not, it's not going to look like we're not just shipping anything anymore, you know, doing it fast. We're going to ship the right things and maybe fewer, but they're going to actually get us some more results. Thank you. I have a question. Um, uh, hi. Um, so as you mentioned in the beginning, uh, when a company is small, uh, product, product strategy is uh, very aligned with um, uh, company strategy, right? Um, and uh, huge companies, um, because they are so big, they uh, have grown a lot. Um, they have missions that they um, post. They have values and uh, like make all people happy. Um, um, so can we say that uh, this mission is somehow uh, a high overview of company strategy? And second, um, sorry, just let me yeah. fin finish. Um, 
So because the company is so big uh, and people on lower levels, um, they are contributing to very, very small areas. And it might be that they are lost trust into these values and mission because uh, they are contributing so small um, to the whole mission. So they don't even feel and understand. So do you think it is a problem um, or it's kind of fine that companies uh, with such a like big uh, size have this uh, like people on lower levels that just don't trust or don't uh, contribute a lot to the whole mission. Thanks. Yeah, in a larger organization, uh, so this is the reason for strategy deployment too. Um, give you an example of that, like 5,000 person company I was talking about earlier where we deployed all these things. You, my first thing whenever I go into an organization is I ask all the teams, like, what are you building and why, right? Like, the, how does it achieve the goals of the company or how does it achieve the vision or the mission? A lot of them were like, eh, no freaking clue. Like it's just, you know, we're just build these things. And somebody told us to build it. That's what we're gonna do. So um, that to me means that somebody didn't deploy strategy correctly. Like if you deploy it correctly, everybody in the organization should say, even though I'm working on the login API, I know it contributes and rolls up to this part of the world. And that part of the world is solving this goal at a company, high level company value, right? Like this is how I provide value. And if your teams can't do that, then like the leaders, I tell the leaders, I'm like, you're not doing your job. If your teams can't articulate how, what they're building is solving um, problems for the company or contributing to the goals, you know, that's not great. Now, it may be hard to completely align that to the mission. Also, I think a lot of really large corporate missions are just horrible. Like, like they're, they don't <laughs> tell you anything. You're like, um, Every bank almost has the same exact mission. It's like help people with their finances, make it make people more financially stable. And you're like, cool, you and every other bank in the world. So how are you different, right? Like why why is that different? Like how is that you know how is that unique? How do you win? How why should I go with Chase First Bank of America? I don't know, right? Like so so those types of things I don't think are doing a service for companies, you know, when they just do these very fluffy high level missions. So that's why when I do come in, I, I make them do the visions too. Like I make them do a much more tailored company vision and in a large corporation too. Like if you are a Chase or Bank of America or um, like a large insurance company, they, they will have something super fluffy on the corporate level, but every business line is needs to be solid then. So like, you know, business banking at Chase, like Chase might be like, I have no idea. Like I don't work with, with them. So I'm just making this up. So don't take this as like a thing, but their business banking needs to have like a concrete way how theirs is going to be better than Bank of America's, right? Like how are they yeah. going to win? How is it going to differentiate? What's going to be better? How do we, where, where are we playing? How are we doubling down? What's going on here? But the mission of Chase might be like to make everybody more financially comfortable or something like that. And that, that could be a little bit fluffy. Hopefully it's not fluffy. Hopefully it's a little more defined about what type of bank they want to be. Um, I don't know what their mission is. I don't know what their vision is. I haven't looked at it lately, but like that, that to me is what you see in a lot of corporations. And as long as you could trace it back to that business line and that's, that's really solid, I think. And you can see how it contributes to the overall corporation. I think that's totally fine. But um, to me, like if you can't tell that story as anybody on a team, there is something wrong with your strategy deployment. Like your leaders didn't do it correctly. Okay, thank you. I'm just looking at the time as well, because um, I know that uh, I said you until seven and what until one for you. I was gonna say for the ones that have the book, maybe we can show it and then I take like a picture. Yeah. 
<laughs> then I will send it to you as well, Melissa. <laughs> Thank you. Ah, awesome. All right. Okay. Three, two, one. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Thanks for right. sharing. Yes. Thank you very much, uh, Melissa. I think everyone really enjoyed the discussion and the book. So yeah, thanks again. Thanks everyone for joining. Thanks everyone. And you can hit me up on Twitter if you have any more questions at Lissy Jean. All right. Bye-bye. Have everyone. a nice day, everyone. Bye-bye. Right. Thank you so much. Thank Melissa. you. Thanks, Carlos. Thanks everyone for listening. If you want to check the upcoming discussions and join us, go to productbookclub.com. 